ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. And the police make it hard wherever I may go. And I ain't got no home in this world anymore. Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee with Comrades, a leftist podcast discussing current events, theory, and action through a radical lens. Hey everybody and welcome to the second episode of Coffee with Comrades. If you don't already, please go ahead and give us a follow on Twitter at CoffeeWComrades and subscribe to our RSS feed on our website, which is CoffeeWithComrades.com. We also have an Instagram as well, if you're into that, um, at CoffeeWithComrades. And please, 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 if you can, go ahead and rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes and the Google Play Store to help us increase our reach. We still really want guests to come and visit the show. We do have a couple of uh, guests already lined up, but if you're knowledge about, knowledgeable about a certain topic and or want to share that insight, please go ahead and reach out to us. If you have any feedback or criticism, go ahead and hit us up at coffeewithcomrades uh, at gmail.com. On today's episode of Coffee with Comrades, we wanted to talk about gun control. Specifically, we want to provide a leftist analysis of gun control that is rooted in a material construction of U.S. culture and history. Because everyone with half a brain cell could tell you that this is a complex and convoluted issue. In this episode, Bree and I will be dunking on the libs and the conservatives in equal measures because we both agree that instead of gun control, we need liberation. We need to denuclearize, demilitarize, and disarm or preferably abolish the police. This is especially uh, fresh and important to us right now following the recent death of Antoine Rose Jr., a 17-year-old boy in Pittsburgh. Uh, Antoine was murdered and shot in the fucking back by yet another trigger-happy pig on June 19th. Uh, Yet another senseless tragedy in a long and constantly growing list of senseless tragedies. Uh, So we really want to touch on why that happens and how we can work towards a better future for our children. So it's obvious that we uh, have a gun violence problem here in the United States. If you're, as long as you're not living under a rock, you know this. This is backed up by mounds upon mounds of statistical evidence. Um, Our country has an annual average of 13,000 deaths caused by gun violence every year. Uh, This puts us in fourth place out of 34 developed nations in the world. Uh, We're behind Mexico, Turkey, and Estonia for the highest uh, incidence rate of gun deaths. Which is unreal. Super unreal. 13,000 is a huge number uh, to die by what is just a totally preventable death. Um, Every few months, we'll have a mass shooting in this country, and it's usually in a school, and every few months, the response is predictable. Uh, The liberal media cries out for common sense gun legislation, gun control, and the banning of specific weapons. Uh, This is an understandable, well-flawed, knee-jerk reaction to a heart-wrenching and troubling pattern of events. Meanwhile, the right-wing crowd will throw their hands up in a collective, what can you do? And they will blame, at best, the lack of prayer in schools, and at worst, our unprepared and wildly underpaid teachers. I would argue that the true sources of this plague upon our society are numerous. We're dealing with a multi-headed monster here, and it's complicated, and there's not going to be one magic bullet to end this. Obviously, this isn't the narrative that either side wants to push. Um, It's so much easier for them to point fingers and argue over stupid legislation and outdated laws, nothing ever changing, nothing effective, nothing lasting. 
Um, the Democrats will score easy political points by exploiting these tragedies and their victims. Um, and it's easy for them to look like the good guys because if only those silly Republicans would just listen to them, um, maybe children wouldn't have to die in their classrooms. It's an easy play for them to make. Um, and then on the Republican side, they're backed by the racist and hateful NRA, National Rifle Association. Uh, they're just digging their vampiric claws deep into the Second Amendment of a 200-year-old document and screeching about wanting an armed public that's capable of defending themselves against some abstract tyranny. And we're going to get into what they actually mean by this later. Spoiler alert, they're racist. And yet this party of fear-mongering capitalist mosquitoes quietly works each and every day to turn our country's police force into a standing army and lay siege into the American people. To Bree's point, while it's obvious that there is no one solution and there are many root causes, uh, we want to take some time to try and identify what the real culprits of mass gun violence in the United States actually are. And so we identified five different causes to gun violence in the United States. It's important to note, however, that these five different unique causes are all interconnected. Uh, they're not independent in any way, shape, or form. They overlap and are interdependent and interlinked in many different ways. And so those five different causes that we have seen are white supremacy, patriarchy, toxic masculinity, militarism, and capitalism. And so we want to try and take some time today on this episode to unpack each of these five different causes and in an effort to try and help elucidate how we can confront and hopefully overcome the specter of horror that is mass gun violence in this country. Mm -hmm. So first up, we have white supremacy. Gun control in the United States, on the rare occasions that it actually is instituted, always targets people of color. As on, we on the left, we kind of have a general shared understanding that laws aren't about what the law actually says. It's all about its enforcement and how it plays out on the streets and in the courts. Um, and if you think that any sort of meaningful gun control legislation, be it stricter background checks or bans on certain types of rifles or ammunition, are going to be applied equally and universally across people of all races and socioeconomic backgrounds, you're just fucking mistaken. I'm yeah, sorry. You know, you don't have to look much further than the war on drugs to know that this sort of prohibitive legislation passed under the guise of protecting our communities will undoubtedly just paint even larger targets on the back of our most vulnerable communities. Our nation's earliest gun laws were directly and specifically aimed at black people. Following the Civil War, southern states passed black codes, which are just as awful and repulsive as you can guess. Um, they were written specifically to target the newly freed uh, slave population, and they criminalized things like vagrancy, swearing, disobeying your white employer, and of course, possessing a firearm. And these laws were enforced by state militias, as well as your friendly neighborhood Ku Klux Klan. Well into the civil rights era and beyond, people in rural black communities took up arms to defend themselves against murderous, violent, racist trash, and their right to do so uh, was under constant attack. Um, in 1964 in Jonesboro, Louisiana, we saw the founding of the Deacons for Defense and Justice. In 1964, the desegregation of Jonesboro, Louisiana High School was threatened by local authorities with fire hoses. Four armed black men arrived with loaded shotguns. Without firing a shot, the mob dispersed and the authorities retreated. 
um, which is a really fascinating group. I kind of fell into a hole while I was researching uh, for this episode, and I would love to just do an episode talking about this specific group. And they um, got together in the aftermath of the assassination of Malcolm X, uh, and it's this group of black activists, mostly veterans, that came together to defend their communities and especially their churches from the KKK. These were regular, everyday people. They were not some paramilitary group. The thing that made them different is they were veterans from the Korean War. They were veterans from World War II. And so they did have the training and they did have the discipline. They came from being veterans. Once the Klansman and the white citizen counselor and the deputy sheriff that was wearing the sheet at night learned that these deacons for defense would shoot back, then they were not as readily willing to go and pounce upon them in the wee hours of the morning. And of course, you know, within a year, they caught the attention of ultimate cap, J. Edgar Hoover. Never a good thing. After that, we move into the era of the Panthers, and uh, Reagan, who was governor of California at the time, really brought the hammer down on the Panthers in California. There is absolutely no reason why out on the street today a civilian should be carrying a loaded weapon. But I would think that some of the bills that have been suggested, such as not carrying a loaded weapon uh, on a city street or in town, uh, this might uh, certainly be a good one. So in 1967, while Reagan was governor of California, he passed uh, the Mulford Act, mm -hmm. which was a direct reactionary response to the Panthers' practice of openly carrying their firearms. They put trumped up charges of conspiracy and felonies on everyone who went in to exercise a constitutional right and said they had no right to bear arms in a public place. The uh, California Penal Code section 12020 through 12027 and also the Second Amendment of the Constitution guarantees the citizen a right to bear arms on public property. The NRA actually supported this open carry ban, proving definitively that the NRA has never actually stood for the people's right to take up arms to defend themselves or their communities. Of course not. Their actual purpose and intent has always been and still is to pander and profit from white anxiety. I just would like to take a second to talk about the actual wording of the Second Amendment, um, specifically uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. When you look at the wording and you take that literally at its face value, that is exactly what the Panthers were doing. I don't see any difference. Um, you know, they were looking out for their communities when the police would not. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense calls upon the American people in general and the black people in particular to take full note of the racist California legislature, which is now considering legislation aimed at keeping the black people disarmed and powerless at the very same time that racist police agencies throughout the country are intensifying the terror brutality, murder, and repression of black people. And this, the hypocrisy here, it floors me. Um, and the pattern of this selective racist enforcement has never stopped. And even into the modern era when you have uh, policies like stop and frisk in New York City or stand your ground laws here in Florida, these are all echoes of the same old racist fuckery and it's nothing new. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover today asserted that the Black Panthers represent the greatest internal threat to the nation. Hoover said the Panthers have perpetrated numerous assaults on police and have engaged in violent confrontations throughout the country. Any, if you think that any sort of new legislation is going to be different, then you're wrong. 
Yeah, you're just deluding yourself. You're deluding yourself. And I think before we move on, I think it's really important too to like let's dissect the the, the way the Constitution works, right? Because yeah. the Constitution is supposed to be this preeminent legal document mm-hmm. that's supposed to enshrine all the rights of U.S. citizens. But in reality, we again can see consistently throughout history how it is not applied universally to all people. It is usually applied to white people, specifically to white men. And I think that it's important here and like now to kind of note and, and point out that the Constitution is old. It's archaic. It has no bearing and no meaningful application to our lives here in the year 2018. They didn't know what a germ was. They didn't know what a germ was. <laughs> I, the, the, they didn't take baths. It's, it's I mean, well, it's, it's, it's the same thing as like, yeah. okay, it's the same thing as looking at any historical yeah. text and, mm-hmm. and we do the same thing on the left right mm-hmm. people h- how many times have you had a conversation with someone who's like well you know marx has prescribed uh, the exact material historical analysis of uh, the direction of what happens after capitalism and and it's like but that, right it, that's not the way the world right. works dude yes like, we're we're living in a different world now mm-hmm. and so i think that we as human beings have a propensity to focus on these great texts as being somehow uh, uh, timeless, but they're not. They, they simply aren't. Like, one could make the argument, and I think it would be tenuous at best, but one could make the argument that literature can be timeless, that it can speak to people across cultures and across uh, countries and, and across time and space, but documents like the, like the Constitution, documents like Das Kapital, do not have the legitimacy to play out over hundreds and hundreds mm-hmm. of years because we live in a different world yeah. and, and, and so this 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 focus this one-sided focus on the second amendment disregards so much of history mm-hmm. because it is focusing on on a, on a single document way back in the past that has very little bearing or very uh, a very poor ability to predict where we are living yes. today our economy has changed, our technology has changed, our weapons have changed in a ridiculous amount. There's no way that they could have foreseen how things were going to play out and how those things were going to change and develop over time. Yeah. They didn't have magic powers. They weren't psychic. No, for sure. Uh, One other thing that we want to touch on before we leave this idea of white supremacy is that Gun violence, again, in, is, is rooted in white supremacy. Um, one need only look at shooters like Dylan Roof to understand that the underpinnings of violence in this country tend to be deeply and profoundly racist. However, you can look at the alt-right or far-right more broadly to recognize that the specter of violence is intrinsic to the construct of whiteness. As a recent report from the Southern Poverty Law Center put it, the alt-right is killing people. Quote, There have been at least 13 alt-right-related fatal episodes, leaving 43 dead and more than 60 injured. Nine of all the 12 incidents counted here occurred in 2017 alone, making last year the most violent year for the movement. It's also a fact that 70% of the guns in this country are owned by 3% of the population. (laughs) The alt-right has a propensity for advocating lone wolf violence. Richard Spencer himself, after a series of defeats at the hands of anti-fascists, posted a widely circulated article on altright.com about the need for lone wolves. 
We can see this violence play out again and again and again in the likes of groups like Adam Waffen, the Three Percenters, militia groups. All of this goes hand in hand to foment whiteness, foment white power, and foment white nationalism. And it's always, always, always rooted in violence. Uh, the next thing we want to talk about is patriarchy, right? Mm -hmm. So patriarchy is one of the foundational principles of gun violence because, as, again, anyone who's paid attention to this issue at all will tell you, the primary perpetrators of this, ver of this violence are white men. And it's especially evidence when you have like mass public killings, like school shootings. Um, it's almost a hundred percent committed by men, and it has always irritated the fuck out of me that nobody in the mainstream conversation um, has ever asked or investigated why it is that this particular demographic is so susceptible to such a specific behavior. Uh, if it were any other segment of the population it would be handled completely differently. Exactly. Uh, it, could you, like, can you imagine if it was exclusively women that were shooting up schools? We would be like locking up all of the women in mass and institutionalizing people. Um, patriarchy, you know, by its very nature breeds narcissism and violence. It teaches our boys that from a very young age, they're entitled, they're entitled to success, to power, to sex or whatever. And when they don't, when they aren't given what society has told them that they are entitled to, or when they are alienated and abused by a toxic capitalistic system with no safety net for anyone, but especially the boys who are left behind, it creates Nicholas Cruz, it creates Dylan Roof and Elliot Roger. And, and, and it creates a vacuum uh, of nihilistic violence for the alt-right to prey upon. And we are consistently and repeatedly failing our little boys. And I don't want anybody to misunderstand me here. I am not uh, suggesting that telling our kids to be nicer to their classmates is the answer to this or whatever the fucking Republicans are trouting out these days. Um, that's not the solution. It's not on the children. It's on us. It's on our culture. Uh, we've created the cracks that our babies fall through and when they come out the other side they're fucking nazis and it's on us to make sure that that doesn't happen and to like take up responsibility for our own communities and our own children mm -hmm. well said and and this idea of patriarchy obviously breeds right into toxic masculinity mm -hmm. um Anyone who even takes a casual glance at gun culture in the United States will tell you that it is machismo to its core. Uh, we have a, a culture of gun worship. There's no story that captures this cultish psychosis quite like the one that came out last year when a church in Pennsylvania decided to have a commitment ceremony of AR-15 rifles in which worshipers who were wearing bullet crowns committed to holding on to their guns no matter what the cost. Worshippers wore crowns, dressed in white, and clutched AR-15 rifles as some, if not many, exchanged or renewed wedding vows at the World Peace and Unification Sanctuary Church in Newfoundland Wednesday. The church, which has a worldwide following, believes that the AR-15 symbolizes the rod of iron in the book of Revelation and encouraged couples to bring the weapons which were required to be unloaded before attendees could enter the church. The pastor prayed for, quote, a kingdom of peace police and peace militia where the citizens, through the right given to them by Almighty God to keep and bear arms, will be able to protect one another and protect human flourishing. 
The ceremony was met with what looked like a handful of protesters and prompted a nearby elementary school to move down the street to other campuses. The ceremony comes on the same day Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School students return to school. Also, it's fucking creepy. Yeah, it's and just creepy. It's just weird. But, but like this also, of course, is necessarily fundamentally tied to our, our, our militarism. I mean, the United States pays over 60% of its budget towards its military. It's not video games that are causing mass shootings, contrary to what the Republicans might want to tell you. Yes. We have a culture of militant, toxic imperialism and a genocidal legacy of xenophobia and colonial conquest that's rooted in chattel slavery and the, the, the extinction of indigenous peoples. And I would add to that that our video games are probably more so a reflection of that than the other way around. Um, I think we would have very different video games if we lived in a different culture. Because capitalism breeds this sort of nihilistic loneliness that is necessary for people to commit these kinds of atrocities. Study after study after study shows that capitalism breeds atomization and isolation, and these uh, effects are only engendered by late-stage capitalism. In the 80s, when neoliberal capitalism came to the fore and we created a, uh, a vacuum of nihilistic energy that has spread to all corners of the U.S. in a rapid-fire and horrifying way, and it might be taboo, but mental health is a legitimate aspect of this crisis. Study after study after study shows that capitalism causes loneliness and depression. And folks who already have mental illnesses are going to find that those symptoms are exacerbated beneath a system of wage labor. And then we don't even have access to adequate medical care to help alleviate some of those symptoms of the mental health crisis that we have going on, especially here in the United States. Furthermore, if we're going to talk about gun violence in this country, we can't talk about gun violence without talking about the police. We could do an entire episode on police brutality and police violence, and more than likely we soon will. But as we have only a limited amount of space in which we can discuss this particular issue in this episode, we want to touch on a couple of major issues. First and foremost, Bree and I want to make it perfectly clear that we are advocates for abolishing the police, for destroying the police state, and for seeking further emancipation and liberation for all people, for all animals, for everyone on planet Earth. However, for the sake of this discussion, we are going to try and explore the results of cops being armed to the teeth in this country and being trained in the use of deadly force. Yes. Um, our police here in the United States are unique compared to our wealthy developed peers, uh, especially, you know, when you look at European countries, uh, which again, I'll just reiterate what Pearson said. I'm not down with the cops in any context, any country. However, our, our cops here are uniquely armed, uniquely trained. We have a program where we send them to train with the fucking IDF. We give them access to military-grade weapons and equipment, and they are literally a standing army here on our own soil, and we, the American people, are their enemy. You know, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, the yes. people who are most famous recently for shooting nonviolent protesters in the mm -hmm. head in the Gaza Strip. Those people. Those people. Cops came from slavery. Uh, this is a fundamental aspect of the U.S. experience, that cops uh, have an intrinsic connection to the slave catchers of yore. Um, we can see this in study after study, after historical document after historical document. 
the American police state is directly connected to slave catchers that followed after chattel slavery. Modern-day abolitionists have inherited uh, the, the cause that was first prospered under the Underground Railroad, who, the people who fought to abolish chattel slavery. We now fighting against the prison industrial complex, against modern-day slavery in that same prison industrial complex, and against the police state carry on that radical history. So Bree and I would argue that we need to disarm, first and foremost, but preferably abolish the police. You could break it up and, and create jobs from the, the, the vacuum that they left behind. You could have people who are specifically trained in order to do certain roles. There's no need for a cop to have a gun on his or her hip when they are directing traffic. There's no need for a cop to bring a gun into a domestic argument. These are situations in which violence and, and pain are only exacerbated by people who have weapons and who have specialized training to use those weapons. Cops end up escalating these situations instead of de-escalating them. We, we see time after time, story after story of mentally ill folks who are having a crisis, a mental health crisis, and cops come in and they only understand the language of violence and fear, and so mm -hmm. people die because of it. True that. Mm -hmm. True fucking that. Um, yeah, like Pearson said, if anything, uh, our police being equipped with these weapons, it just escalates the situations rather than de-escalating them, um, especially like you mentioned, domestic violence disputes. Um, the worst thing you can do in a situation like that is to bring a gun into the mix. Um, and same with, you know, when you see peaceful protests out in the street and then you have the cops that come and want to fucking unload rubber bullets on people. Like, it just creates chaos where there previously was just peaceful dissent. So there's a, there, a trope in, in cinema, mm -hmm. right? That whenever a gun shows up in a movie, it has to go off. Yeah. And the same could be said for situations of power in the real world. When a gun shows up, the situation is automatically going to be escalated in some way, shape, or form. And... This is a fundamental truth and a fundamental reality that we have seen time and time and time again. We can point to something like the, the, the seminal Philip Zimbardo study in which the students were put into a prison industrial complex and some students were given the role of being the cops or the prison guards and the other half of the students were the criminals. And we see that the power dynamics that are implicit in those situations mm -hmm. engender violence. And this is exactly what happens when cops are given a gun, a badge, and a license to fucking kill with impunity. And the rules for our police are so ambiguous. Um, they are just basically allowed to kill with impunity if they feel afraid. You know, who gets to define what justifies being afraid mm -hmm. you know since like they get to be afraid of a young black boy running literally away from them and then you know and shoot, they shoot and, the and they get times. to shoot them and you know i would like to take a moment to uh mention you know philando castile's murderer he's out walking free he's been asked to step down from the police force from what i understand but he was acquitted of philando castile's murder and philando castile he followed all the rules he did everything that he was supposed to do he you know to the letter he let the officer know hey i am licensed to carry i have my weapon with me in the car right now and he was fucking murdered having said all of that like it or not as much as we might want to live in a world of peace and justice and restorative projects that rehabilitate people we unfortunately live in a world that is shrouded in violence as an anarchist, I personally value prefiguration above many other practical tenets. 
But having said that, there are bodies in the streets. We can aspire towards these ideal horizons. We can hope and dream and, and fight for a better world. But unfortunately, we will have to fight. Neither Bree or I think that we're going to suddenly rise up and miraculously smash the state. We're hey. outgunned. We are hopelessly outmanned. However, we do want to be able to defend ourselves and our communities from vigilante and state-sponsored justice whenever and wherever possible. Because as late-stage capitalism engenders more and more collapse, social spaces erupt for us to take autonomous, direct action. We can see this happening in places like in the wake of Hurricane Harvey, or in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, or in Rojava. We see that there are reactionary forces who are going to try to take power and how we can fight back and create radical spaces of autonomy, of resistance, and of freedom. But we have to have guns. We have to be armed and we have to more off, more, more likely than not, we have to know how to use those yes. guns because we will have to. Yes. Yes. This is definitely not Pearson and I advocating for, like, if you have no idea what the fuck you're doing, like, please don't go out and grab a gun. Don't do that. Uh, Be smart. Be responsible. We do not want to replicate the gun worship that we see on the other side. We do not want to be like those people. We do not want to romanticize guns. You know, I would prefer it if guns were not necessary, but unfortunately, like Pearson said, we live in a culture of violence, and if that's what it's going to take to defend ourselves and our communities, then that's what we have to do. We have to do what we have to do. I think it's worth taking some time to unpack this idea too mm-hmm. of like what does it mean to create a leftist gun culture right like mm-hmm. i think part of it is it's going to have to be rooted and in, in struggles against patriarchy mm-hmm. and struggles against white supremacy mm-hmm. and struggles against militarism mm-hmm. and struggles against toxic masculinity For sure. these, these things are all necessarily interlinked and if we are going to create a universal emancipated society then we will have to actively confront every force that is against us every force that might cause mass gun violence Mm -hmm. uh, to occur in the first place and so we have to be cogent we have to be uh, aware and we have to be willing to respond in in a way that is uh, using violence only as a last resort not as a not as an offensive thing but as uh, as self-defense i think that that's Mm -hmm. where really where it comes down to is a culture of guns that is situated entirely around self-defense that is not afraid to use guns but is reluctant to use guns that, yeah it, that uses it as a last resort that uses it as la- as self-defense and lays down those weapons as soon as is humanly possible right right i totally agree um i think that if you know if we're going to have any kind of leftist gun culture it is really important that we like detach it from its you know patriarchal machismo uh, associations and that's going to take conscious effort it's going to take work because it is so ingrained into us about what guns are what they mean what they stand for Um, it's going to be work it's not going to be easy and it's going to take a conscientious reframing of how we think about guns how we use them how we talk about them I think another thing that's really important too is recognizing fundamentally that the people who don't have guns are going to have more power and more control necessarily over the people who do have guns because 
there is an imbalance when people take guns, when people have firearms, that is an implicit power dynamic that enters into that relationship. And so the people who don't have guns should necessarily have more power in that situation than the people with guns. People with guns should be answerable to the people who don't have guns. They should be answerable to the communities that they are defending. Um, and, sure. and there have to be ways of mediating that. And I think that we can see, we can point to examples like Rojava that have figured out ways of doing that in, a, in an effective, meaningful way that creates a culture of, of guns being for self-defense, of guns being for um, uh, protecting and, 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 and serving a community and not for actually domineering over a community or, or succumbing to any of these white supremacist, patriarchal, toxic uh, values that we see expressed in right-wing gun culture. So in preparation for this episode, I listened to a Scott Crow's interview on Rev Left. I love Scott Crow. Um, and I love Rev Left as well. Um, it was a great episode. You should go check it out if you haven't heard it. Um, but he talks about the importance of not getting into an arms race with the alt-right and with the sort of other side because that's not at all what we should want to do. It would be counterproductive. It would be harmful um, to our cause. Ultimately, I think that guns then necessarily are going to have to be something that we're going to have conversations about. Mm -hmm. um, again, to, to, to reiterate, it's not a black and white issue. Mm -hmm. It's something that's complex. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that is obviously very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we as leftists, as critical thinkers, as people who are concerned with the liberation and freedom and justice of human beings and of the planet must necessarily confront. Um, it's not something that we can shy away from. It's we need to take some time to, to really think about why it makes us uncomfortable and how, yeah. and how we can make this type of um, conversation more inviting and more open and more transparent to people mm -hmm. because it is a uncomfortable situation. It's, a, it's an uncomfort uncomfortable conversation to have in, in the first place. But I think it's a vital one. I think it's one that as we see late stage capitalism decaying more and more and more that we would wish that we had had sooner rather than later. I agree. And, you know, everybody's Republican uncle at some point has, you know, chatted out that stupid fucking old trope where they're like, oh, guns don't kill people, keep people kill people, mm -hmm. which is true to an extent, but we need to seriously examine why it is that we're using guns to kill each other um, and why guns have come to represent what they do because it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. It doesn't need to be that way. Guns could be something that were liberatory, mm -hmm. that were a safeguard, mm -hmm. that were able to protect us. They, unfortunately, however, are something that has been co-opted mm -hmm. by forces of reaction mm -hmm. and, and by the right more generally. Sure. Um, and, and again, uh, I think that that's intrinsically tied to this this constitutional bullshit. Um, these these uh, libertarians or so-called libertarians on the right who um, are absolutists for the Constitution for this this two hundred year old document. We see the same thing with Marxists who are religiously devoted to Das Kapital. We see the same thing mm -hmm. with fucking Christians or with uh, any religious like text uh, that that is given a preeminence or or uh, fundamental um, superiority to all others this is a 
fundamental problem with not asking difficult, tough questions about the world, about the texts that we read, and about one another. And until we can have those difficult, tough conversations, we're going to continue relying on old texts that have no real, meaningful, dynamic impact on our lives today. Hell yeah. So ultimately, what do we want, Bree? We want to take control. Exactly. We want universal emancipation for all people, all animals on the planet. We want liberation. We do not want to give more power to the people who are already engorged with power. We want to take power back. Yes. Disarm the police. Disarm the police. Abolish the police. Yes. Denuclearize, demilitarize, arm the proletariat, not the police.
of the class, but the lesson plan he can't recall. The student's eyes don't perceive the lies mounting up every fucking wall. Closure was well kept. I guess he fears playing the fool. The place the students sit and listen to that bullshit that he'd learned in school. You're a beat my rope to swing on. Can't learn a thing from it. Yeah, we hang from it. Gotta get it, gotta get it. Put a man. Like a motherfucking rubber man. This bullshit close the doors for those who try. The strike over and bang over truth. Cause the circle of hatred continues unless we react. We gotta take the power back. No more lies. No more lies. Ugh.